I've had enough success to date that I should really shake off that feeling that I might never make it as an entrepreneur, you know? <laughs> I think somehow that's still at the back of my mind. This is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six and seven figure entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. Picture yourself spending four weeks with other high level entrepreneurs in the northern mountains of Thailand, October 26th to November 24th, 2017. It will be full of masterminds, workshops, advisors, like-minded entrepreneurs, and of course, some fun adventure. Currently, we are offering a special early bird discount of $400 for only 10 people. Once they're filled, they're gone. Don't wait on this one, guys. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to contact us ASAP at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now, on to today's episode. Today, podcast listeners, we are joined by the founder of Musical You, Christopher Sutton. Christopher runs Musical You, an online community and website that helps people become more musical. Over the past few years, Christopher has helped over 1 million people with their music goals. On this episode, we chat in depth about how Christopher has created an online community with over 700 musicians or aspiring musicians, and how he has created apps that have been downloaded over 1 million times. We also chat about how entrepreneurs, young and old, can shake the not good enough self-talk. Get ready for another exciting episode, gang, and without further ado, let's welcome the founder of Musical You to the show. Welcome, Christopher, to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thanks. Very excited to be here. And I'm very excited that you are here, and thank you very much for being a fan of the podcast and a friend of the podcast, and thanks for coming on the show. You're calling from beautiful Mexico City today, is that right? That is right, yeah. And you're setting up shop there for the year. Yes, uh, so I'm originally from London and lived most of my life in the UK, but the UK winters I find particularly gloomy and depressing, uh, so I wanted to leave for a long time, and my wife and I jumped ship to Ecuador a few years ago, and then just in January of this year, uh, shifted home base to Mexico. What made you choose Mexico City? I think we were keen to return to Central or South America and continue learning Spanish, find somewhere sunny. And then because my business is location independent, we're pretty flexible. And my wife is currently pursuing a career in public health and found an interesting volunteering opportunity here in Mexico City. All right. Well, we're going to dive into you and we want to hear your story and learn more about you. And then we'll chat about Musical You, which is your business that you're focused on these days. But first, tell us about Christopher Sutton and how he became the entrepreneur that he is today. Sure. So I guess the place to start is that I am not a businessman by nature. <laughs> I grew up a very geeky kid uh, programming video games as a teenager and went on to do computer science at university. So I'm definitely more of a coder than I am a businessman by origin. But um, I, music was always my hobby and my passion. And so by the time it got to doing a master's degree, I did that in digital music processing, so it was kind of a combination of my previous training in computer science with uh, the music side of things. And from there, I worked in university research for a few years and a small startup company for a couple of years before deciding to jump ship and do my own thing. Tell us about your involvement into your first business were you working at the time when you started your first business or did you just kind of cut all cords and go dive into full-time entrepreneur? Um, I was working at the time. Yeah, it's funny. I think when you listen to entrepreneurs tell their story 
half of them will say, oh, I'm unemployable, so I have to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, that was definitely wasn't the case for me. I was happily getting on with a career in um, audio research and development, doing fine. But I started making iPhone apps. This was 2008, 2009, when the iPhone and the App Store were just really getting up to speed. And as I said, music was always my hobby. And I discovered this particular area of music that really excited me, which is developing your ear and your understanding of music by ear. And so I started making iPhone apps because I'm a geeky guy and I had an iPhone. And I put the first one on the App Store. And I, I can't remember if it was a coincidence, but at the, around the same time, I read the four hour work week and I was starting to get into personal development a bit and think that, you know, maybe I should take charge of my life a little bit more. And so what was a hobby project brought in a bit of money. Uh, we were lucky enough that the first app was featured in the app store on the front page for a few days. And so that brought in enough money that I thought, oh, there might actually be something here. And over the next 18 months, I guess, I gradually phased out of my day job uh, to pursue this full time. What was that process like? Because I found it really interesting. So I'm one of the, my first business, I went cold turkey. I was mm. like, you know, I'm working 60 hours at this mortgage shop. And I think if I put 60 hours into a business, I have to at least cover my, my expenses. Lo and behold, I didn't. And <laughs> it was really a rough period of my life, but a good learning experience. But then actually a second, I did this a second time and I did kind of fizzle out. So I worked a contracting job at the same time mm -hmm. while starting another business. Mm -hmm. And I was, it's funny that you mentioned this because I was just thinking about this while eating lunch earlier today that, you know, I don't think any one entrepreneur can say which route is best for them. Some mm. people need that part-time business until they get to the full-time position. And some people just need to cut all cords. So I'm kind of curious, you know, you spent, I think you said 18 months or so going through that process till you were able to let go of the job. How was that for you? Yeah, to, to be honest, it was tough. And I think some entrepreneurs are essentially consultants and they're taking their skill set and they're going out to the market and selling it. And I think in that case, it can make sense to kind of jump ship and just start doing your own thing. In my case, it was a, a product-based company. And what made it tough was I had no way really of predicting how the revenue was going to go. So as I said, we had a, a good start with being featured in the App Store, and that brought in a lot of money real quick. But I was conscious that wasn't you know, how it was going to continue. And so really the main mistake I made at that time, I think, was assuming that the revenue would scale with the number of hours I put into it. And so I was making... I don't remember exactly, but certainly a couple of thousand dollars a month with a hobby project, essentially, with a part-time thing. And I, I was passionate enough about this idea and this um, this opportunity to do my own thing that I wanted to leave my day job. And I just kind of waved my arm and said, well, if I'm spending you know, 10 hours a week or 15 hours a week and making this much money, then if I spend a nine-to-five amount of time, I'll definitely be able to pay my bills. <laughs> and as you just touched on there, you know, it doesn't always go that way. And so part of the reason it took me so long to phase out of the day job was that I did have a genuine emotional connection with the company I was working for and a desire to stay there. But it was also the fact that as I started spending a bit more time on and going to part-time in my day job, 
I realized actually it wasn't as simple as the revenue scaling with the number of hours I could put into it. And there were a lot of things about it that were unpredictable, which meant that if I had bills to pay, it was going to be quite scary to have all of my income depend on my own project. And what would you do differently this time, Chris, based on that experience? I I don't know. I might have to give the cop-out answer that people always give and say I wouldn't change anything because it got me to where I am today. <laughs> yeah. Just because, you know, I don't regret jumping ship. I definitely don't regret starting my own thing. And I don't know that it would have been any easier or faster if I'd done it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I suppose one thing I would do differently is be less embarrassed about doing consultancy in those first couple of years. So, you know, I had a programming skill set and particular audio expertise. It was reasonably easy through my network to find consulting opportunities. And I think for those first few years of running the company, I felt really sheepish and guilty about that because I felt like it was a cop out. You know, Mm. I should be making all my money from these products I was working so hard on. And then actually my accountant said to me at some point, I think we were, you know, discussing the taxes at the end of the year. And I said, yeah, and we have this revenue that's from consultancy. It's not really our main income. And they said something like, oh, yeah, that's normal for a company that's getting off the ground to do a bit of consultancy here and there. And suddenly I was like, oh, right then. Well, I I shouldn't feel too bad about that. (laughs) You feel like a fraud for doing consulting work on the side. You're not a real entrepreneur. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, it was it was bittersweet because I had some great consulting opportunities. Like I worked at Last FM for a few months, which was one of the companies I really idolized. And on on the one hand, I was really excited about that. And it kind of built my self-esteem that I was in demand with that kind of company. And on the flip side, I felt really guilty because I felt like if my company was doing well enough, I wouldn't need to do that kind of consultancy. <laughs> so I think there's definitely an emotional quagmire. You can get stuck in there. And looking back, I wish I could go back and be like, you know, this is fine. You know, you're going to pay the bills however you need to, and your company will eventually get to the point where it's self-sufficient. It's really interesting how us entrepreneurs, like we create this guilt of like, once we get the official entrepreneur stamp, we can only do these types of activities. And if not, then we're not worthy of this honor of being an entrepreneur, (laughs) which is all things that are just made up in our head, right? Like we're, these are stories we tell ourselves. There's no committee out there saying, oh, you're officially an entrepreneur. You're not an entrepreneur or you're cheating on your entrepreneurial friends and your entrepreneurial (laughs) dreams by taking (laughs) some, some consulting work. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's funny. I I think some of that never goes away. I was literally last night having one of those moments of existential doubt. And I, I had a minor epiphany, I think, which was that at this point, my business is doing well enough that I, I can never have failed as an entrepreneur. Like, yes, there's still a risk that my company fails at this point. And obviously that's something you need to be concerned about if it's going to happen. But at the same time, I've had enough success to date that I should really shake off that feeling that I might never make it as an entrepreneur, you know? <laughs> I think somehow that's still at the back of my mind. That I, I haven't quite made it yet. I, I would say experience and successes, you know, would be some things that kind of get rid of those insecurities. But throughout your journey growing as an entrepreneur, what are some things that have helped you shake off those voices in your head that says you're not good enough you're not a real entrepreneur i think there are definitely a few things that have helped me a lot one is i do the slightly cheesy thing that you'll hear some people recommend which is to keep a wins folder for me that's a folder in evernote and it's just a place you shove the little you know the nice email thank yous you get and the testimonials and the milestone achievements 
And to be honest, I don't look back there that often, but just the process of keeping it and throwing things in there reminds me that, you know, I am having those minor successes along the way and there's a lot of accumulated milestones I'm hitting. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's helped a lot is the self-reflection that comes from taking the time each week to plan my week and at the end of the week to review it. And I, at the end of week review, I do ask, you know, what went well this week? But really, it's just taking a moment to take stock and look around because otherwise you get so buried in the minutiae, you can easily lose sight of the fact that you've made a lot of progress in the last month or the last year. Um, And likewise, I do quarterly reviews and annual reviews that give you that chance to look back and see not just how far you are from your goal, but actually how far you've come so far. Yeah, and I do both those Mm. on a weekly basis. And one of the things that I've noticed is like I write down the the accomplishments for the week every Sunday night, and then I write Mm -hmm. down the things that I didn't do that I told myself I was going to do. And just the kind of emotional or psychological state that I'm in when I do that, when I see those things that I did do, like I'm really grateful for them. And especially the ones that came up that I didn't know that I was going to do, I'm even more grateful for those. But then you have those ones that that I didn't do, and it just kind of like... I wouldn't say I hate the list, but I just don't want to look at it too, you know, too much. You know, and be on to the next thing. And yeah, it's funny because it's just such a simple thing, and and I think it's really healthy to do that too, to really evaluate how how many good things you do not throughout the day. I've heard of people doing this like every night before they go to bed, they'll read out things that they've got done throughout the day. Cause we'll just forget about them. We could get stressed out and we forget. You've really done some amazing things with your life, especially you live in Mexico city. You've built a phenomenal business for you from the outside looking in, like you've got an incredible life, right? Like there's, nothing to be ungrateful for but then we have those things that are just in the back of our mind that kind of really eat at us for sure i think it's the curse of ambition you know if you want to achieve things you need to be dissatisfied with your present situation (laughs) and for me it's really it's been a major priority to find the balance between gratitude and comfort and maintaining that healthy ambition that's going to make me able to achieve the things i want to achieve I should mention, I actually do um, a daily, I've been doing daily gratitudes for a long time, several years, and you know, that's fantastic for your mindset. But in the last year, I added what Dan Sullivan recommends, which is just writing down your three wins from the day, Mm. which again, is one of those cheesy things from the outside. But when you start to do it, it really does pay off. And there's days where, you know, I really need to reach. I'm like, I was a good dad today. My daughter smiled when I did this or the other. (laughs) And you feel like you're kind of scrambling a bit. Uh, But there are other days where you have real significant business wins that, as you say, you know, by the end of the day, you might have even forgotten the great thing that you did this morning. Um, And I think just keeping those reminders, and particularly at the end of the day, I think it's good for you to kind of briefly recap and pick out a few things that you can be proud of and satisfied with. Are you enjoying today's episode? I hope so. We're working hard to pick the minds of higher level entrepreneurs to bring you some applicable tactics for your business. October 26th through November 24th, we will have our most impactful event ever, 
four weeks in the northern mountains of Thailand with other successful entrepreneurs that have six and seven figures in annual revenue in their businesses. The experience includes private accommodations, workshops, masterminds, advisors, high-speed Wi-Fi at a beautiful resort complex. And for our listeners, we have a special $400 early bird discount for only 10 people. Once they're filled, they're gone. So if you're ready to seriously take your business to the next level, contact us at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now back to the show. Christopher, let's jump into the business you've got going today, Musical You. It's a really cool idea, and I love the idea that you've kind of mixed a passion that you have with not only a business and a service, but you know you have an online community with this. I'd like to kind of just chat more about the evolution of Musical You. So I mentioned phasing out of my day job in 2009 and making those iPhone apps. That was under the guise of a company called Easy Ear Training. And ear training was really the genesis of this. There is traditionally an area of music education called ear training, which is about learning to recognize the notes and chords and rhythms in music by ear. And this is something that was just fascinating to me once I discovered it, because I'd literally been learning music for a couple of decades and no one had really told me about this. Wow. And so I'd, I'd got to a decent level on several instruments and I'd always felt really sheepish because I couldn't play by ear and I couldn't improvise and I didn't really know how to write my own music. And I kind of assumed all of that was just talent. You know, I wasn't a real musician. I was just learning how to play the instruments. And those guys over there that could play by ear, they were the real musicians. And, you know, I loved music enough that I stuck with it. But at the same time, looking back, I was really pretty frustrated for a long time. And then in my early 20s, I was working for this audio startup in Cambridge and I was doing as it turned out, ear training for audio quality. So learning to recognize different audio frequencies and audio effects by ear as part of my day job. And I kind of stumbled onto this adjacent area of musical ear training and realized actually there was a process for learning to recognize notes and chords by ear and be able to play your instrument by ear. And that just got me so excited, I dived in. And what I found was it was super powerful but it was super boring. <laughs> and, you know, I think probably part of the reason I'd never been taught it is that it gets lumped in with music theory, which almost no music student wants to learn. And the methods were really dry and repetitive. And, and so there was enough of a payoff that I stuck with it, but it really wasn't a lot of fun. And that was what made me start creating these iPhone apps. I had this feeling that, you know, in this day and age, technology should make learning fun and easy. And why couldn't that be the case with ear training? So that was really the, the concept of the company was let's use technology to make this really powerful but traditionally boring area of music education much more interesting and effective and accessible to all of the musicians around the world. And so we started out with iPhone apps and what I realized was like it had been neglected in my own education, it really seemed to be a neglected area online. You know, if you looked around the web for ear training, what you found was a few kind of standalone widget websites where you could do a little bit of practice and that was it and the odd article here and there but there didn't seem to be a home for it online which just seemed bizarre given how you know powerful and potentially useful it was to any type of musician so i started plowing most of the money from the apps back into the company and investing in creating a website which was at easyeartraining.com and we'd publish articles every week and try and just get the information out there and provide useful resources for people to explore this. From there, 
I, you know, we started getting traffic and I realized there was an opportunity outside of the App Store because for all its advantages, the App Store is a slightly bizarre, self-contained ecosystem. There's only so much you can do to market and promote your apps. And uh, I was kind of hitting diminishing returns with that. But I felt like, you know, we were getting attention on the website. Maybe I could sell something directly through the website. So from there, we started making info products, uh, so downloadable eBooks and training albums. And I'm saying we at this point because I was hiring freelancers and a lot of the content was being created by music educators, much more expert and experienced than myself, uh, but always on a freelance basis. So I was still really solo in the company until 2015. And we had a couple of years with the info products. What I learned was that it's incredibly hard to sell things outside of the app store. <laughs> I think I had taken for granted that you know, in the cozy environment of iTunes where they already have your credit card details, buying an app is a pretty easy decision for people. Whereas when they land on your website and you say, hey, buy this ebook, it's a much harder sell. So it was an interesting couple of years going in that direction. Then the next iteration was really focusing on a, kind of a subtopic in ear trading, which is the area of tone deafness and singing in tune, which I just kind of got a bee in my bonnet about because the more I talk to people about ear training and their musical training, the more they tell me, you know, with slight embarrassment that they couldn't sing or that they'd always been tone deaf. And these were often people that were very musically capable, you know, they'd be <laughs> expert guitar players and embarrassed because they couldn't hit the notes. And that just struck me as bizarre. And it turned out there's this whole kind of psychological mess around tone deafness and singing in tune. And so I kind of spent uh, 18 months working on that and creating a free test people could do to see if they were tone deaf or not. And fortunately, 99% of people aren't. So that was quite a positive thing to put out there. And also developing a dedicated iPhone app that kind of teaches you to train your voice to sing in tune and gives people that confidence that actually they can sing after all. So that was uh, the evolution of the company up till early 2015, which was when the time came, I guess, to do what James Schramko describes as the roll-up. I, I kind of looked around and I literally had 10 or 12 products and half a dozen marketing funnels. And it, it, the company had just gotten very complex, which was a bit ridiculous given it was still just me and some freelancers working on it. And I kind of, I'd always had this idea that what we should offer is just an all-in-one training solution. You know, if someone wants to learn these skills, learn to play by ear and improvise and sing in tune, they should be able to just come to us. We say, sure, pay us this much each month and we'll teach you all that stuff. But it had taken me a long time to figure out the marketing and the technology to make that possible. Finally, in 2015, I felt like we had reached that point and we'd built up such a stock of great content and proven training material. I was really excited to see if we could bundle it up and provide kind of a one-stop shop, one shop membership site that could teach people these skills. Uh, and so that was the birth of Musical U in 2015. Great story, my friend. Now, the success with your apps is quite phenomenal. I mean, you've had uh, your apps downloaded over a million times. And I'm kind of curious if we could talk more about this. And I, and I know a great niche is part of the success, but what are some things or maybe some strategies that you used to really help get so many downloads for the apps that you've had? 
It's an interesting question because, as I said before, the App Store is a slightly odd ecosystem Mm -hmm. in that you kind of get your shelf space. There are SEO-type things you can do to improve the odds of your apps coming up in search. But really, the App Store is a closed environment. There's only so much you can do from the outside unless you have a massive marketing budget to drive sales of your apps. And so I suppose if I look back, We've had a lot of success with three of the apps. Uh, I suppose we've technically put out seven or eight at this point. And the first one called Relative Pitch was selected by Apple. uh, So that was a a massive uh, boon. I think if we're totally honest, I would have to give some credit to the fact that it was early days in the App Store. So it certainly wasn't the first year training app. There were probably three or four very popular ones at that time. But it did have the advantage of being relatively new. Um, as a marketplace, there was less competition. I'd like to think we built it quite well in terms of user experience and sticking to what Apple at the time was saying to do for user experience, which meant that when an Apple employee looked at it, they could kind of smile and nod and say, yes, they're doing it right. I think one kind of tactical level thing was I decided, I think inspired by the four-hour work week and exploring Elance and what kind of freelancers were available on there, I decided the app should really say out loud what it was teaching you. And looking back, I think that was a major, um, a major wow factor for that one app was that when you opened it, it said, hi, welcome to Relative Pitch, select training to get started, which you know is a very small and easy thing to do, but there were so few apps that were talking to you in that way, I think it made a real impression. And I think having a high-quality voice actor provide all of those recordings just gave the app a bit more of a polished feel. So I think that increased its odds of being selected. And then obviously once it was featured by Apple, it got a lot more momentum. It got positive reviews and snowballed a bit from there. The success of apps that have been successful would be Tone Dev Test and SingTrue, which were part of this project I mentioned to kind of tackle this issue of people feeling like they can't sing. And there, I think the interesting thing is tapping into an existing cultural phenomenon. So like I said, you talk to almost anyone, whether they're a musician or not, and they'll have some kind of emotional connection with singing. You know, they might have been a teenager and their school teacher said they couldn't sing, or they weren't allowed to join the choir, or they might have been singing all their life at karaoke nights and love it to death. It's a topic that really people get excited about. And it's a topic that people tease each other about. So, you know, with Tone Deaf Test, the the website and the app, I was very careful to make sure we stayed very positive. You know, this was not going to be about teasing people who weren't good at singing. But at the same time, that's kind of what people have the urge to do. And so we did play up on that a little bit in that when you pass the test, it says, hey, share this and, you know, tell everyone you're not tone deaf. And we also put a line in there about at mentioning anyone you think should take the test. So with the tone deaf test, it definitely got a bit of social play. I wouldn't go so far as to say viral, but we definitely did get a lot of amplified exposure due to that kind of social phenomenon. And then sing true piggybacks on that so that, you know, anyone who passes tone deaf test is a good candidate for trying the sing true app, which was a, a freemium app so they could get started for free. And I think that definitely drove downloads of SingTrue. Do you have any plans for creating more apps in the future? 
It's a slightly tricky one for us. I have a, uh, I wouldn't say love-hate, but I have mixed feelings about <laughs> the App Store. Mm -hmm. It's been very good to us in a number of ways, but it's also incredibly frustrating in a number of ways. And now that we've got better at marketing ourselves out on the wild web, I feel less need to try and do it inside the App Store. I think what I learned with SingTrue was it is... I think unquestionably one of the top singing apps in the app store. And if you search for sing or singing, I'm pretty sure it'll come up in your top five results. Even so, the amount of money it brings in is, it's not huge. Um, I couldn't tell you off the top of the head the exact numbers, but we're talking a few thousand dollars, not tens of thousands each month. And I think that just kind of made clear to me that if you can have an app like that, that is top five for a popular search term and you know, SingTrue was featured by Apple too, and is you know featured by Apple themselves, and still you're only making a few thousand dollars a month. Something's not quite right there um, in terms of you know future growth potential. And so I'm sure there's more we could do to improve the revenue that SingTrue generates, and I'm sure there's more we could do to create more apps and really double down on App Store stuff. But I think part of what gets a lot of people into entrepreneurship is that. Uh, I suppose, unlimited horizon, you know, the unlimited upside potential of starting your own company and going online. And to me, that just isn't there with the App Store. Unless you're a huge company and you can dedicate marketing dollars, it's hard to to really grow huge based purely on iOS app revenue. Mm. And so I love the App Store and I love Apple devices. And I, on a you know, personal level, I enjoy coding for that platform. But realistically, if I want my company to grow to the size I do, which is, you know, number one internationally recognized brand for musicality training, I'm not going to get there just making iPhone apps. And I think the potential for us in the future is really figuring out the best way to incorporate those iPhone apps into what we're doing at Musical U. And so the next steps for us are making sure that when you train with one of our iPhone apps, it's reported back to your member profile in Musical U. And making sure that all of the interactive training we're developing inside the Musical U website works fantastically well on iOS, whether or not it's packaged up as a native app. Very nice. You've built an online community, and I'd like to learn more about, I think there's a lot of people that would really like to build a community that have good businesses going, but they get a little, I think, stuck on just kind of the how-tos. And, mm -hmm. and so if we could kind of go through the process of, of how you built your community and, and some of the most important lessons you learned along the way. Sure. So I think one thing I should clarify before giving any kind of advice is there are companies out there where I would say they have a big public community. So maybe they have a free Facebook group or they have public forums and basically anyone can rock up and be part of their community and you can talk to them about how they grow that kind of free for everyone community. We're not actually in that camp. So we have what I would call a large audience. And so we're reaching probably 120,000 users and visitors each month through our website and apps. And we have a decent sized mailing list on the back of that. And so there are a lot of people that come to us without paying anything and are part of what I consider our wider community. But, you know, they're not talking to each other so much. Um, so I'm providing a lot of personal feedback via email for those on our free email courses. And that's definitely something um, I can talk a bit about. 
But when I talk about our community, I'd really be referring to our paid community inside Musical U. And so that is somewhere where we have forums and discussion boards and members can connect with one another. And we really have that sense of a community that's built up. And how big is your community now? Uh, so inside Musical U, we have about 700 active members at the moment. Nice. Is it all online or do you guys do any activities in person? Uh, it's all digital for us. I think in music education, people are always quick to say, you know, do you have uh, an in-person teaching or workshops or are you doing seminars or can I have lessons with you? Mm-hmm. And for me, a bit like I said before about the unlimited upside, for me, the amazing opportunity in this day and age is to create things that can reach an unlimited number of people around the world. And so anytime I'm kind of veering towards doing in-person stuff, I veer quickly away again um, because I just don't see that as the right path forward for our company. Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's really for a lot of companies, but it's absolutely not for a lot of companies. For sure. And I I wouldn't for a minute diminish the value of in-person. You know, with something like the Entrepreneur House, you can't get that same experience online. You know, there's a genuine usefulness to being there in person with a group of people. And it's the same in music education. You know, if someone's telling me they want to start learning guitar, I would always advise them to have some lessons in person to begin with. And after that, they can think about learning online with a, a Skype teacher but there's real value to having that physical lesson to begin with. With us, it's a bit different, I guess, because we're teaching the inner skills of music. There's really not that much advantage to doing the teaching in person. Um, And on the community side of things, to be honest, I don't feel our community is yet at the size where it makes sense to do those in-person events. Uh, I'd love to in future for the kind of social get-together aspect. Um, but as I said, you know, with hundreds rather than tens of thousands of members doing a meetup in any one place isn't yet really a, a viable option. Yeah, good point. Christopher, is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Uh, no, I don't think there's anything in particular. I suppose my big focus for this year is trying to collaborate with other music education companies. So if any of your listeners happen to be musically inclined entrepreneurs, um, please do reach out to me. I'd love to chat about possible collaborations. And if anybody wants to reach out to you, Christopher, where's the best place they could do that at? Sure. So the main website is musical-u.com and you'll find a contact form there that will go straight to me. So feel free to reach out. Christopher, we, we need to give you a huge thank you for coming on the show and sharing everything with us, your story and your tips and your tricks and your strategies. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, my friend. My pleasure. And as I said before we start a recording, I'm an avid listener of the show. So thank you for all you do to get the great entrepreneurial stories out there. And I will continue to listen and enjoy. Thank you, my friend, and we'll keep at it. And listeners, thank you for tuning in once again, and we're going to wrap up our episode there and see you all next time. Goodbye, everybody. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for six- and seven-figure entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day-to-day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for attendees, and you get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. 
doing it. This year, our main event will be held in Chiang Mai, Thailand. It is four weeks from October 26th to November 24th and held for six and seven figure entrepreneurs only. It will be full of workshops, masterminds, advisors, co-working, and fun weekend social events. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. This event will fill up fast. For those of you that are interested and have some questions, be sure to contact us through theentrepreneurhouse.com forward slash contact. We will respond as soon as possible. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.